My wife was uh, scurrying around last night to see if we could find a gummy rat. And it, it wasn't at the local grocery store, so I didn't have to give one away tonight, which is, which is good. So I want to thank Drew for the opportunity to open the Word to you tonight. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 28. But to get the context, as it's easy to forget where we've been, we're going to start reading in verse 17. And even as we read, I'm going to make some comments just so that we can, we can get in our minds where we've been and where we're going. Because the passage we're dealing with tonight has a lot of application in it, and that application is based on uh, truth, on something very important. So Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 17 Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk, and we learned that walk means to live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now notice all of the mind and thought imagery as Paul walks through this new life argument. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance. And remember, ignorance has to do with an incorrect knowledge, ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So it starts in the mind and then it works itself out in practice. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So again, we're we're getting truth through the mind. You were taught, you learned. To put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, on this basis, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need." Let's pray and ask God's help as we jump into this passage. Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings, giving us your word and the clarity that is in it. Lord, we also realize we're sinners, and sometimes our actions, especially our anger, does lead us uh, to sin and leads us to give the devil an opportunity. But we give you thanks for the forgiveness of our sins, and we realize that we are Christians. We have new life in Christ So even as we come to this passage, we pray for your help to understand what it means for our own lives individually, and I pray for strength and clarity and power as I preach, for Christ's sake and your glory. Amen. So we have the therefore, which really brings in, and I mentioned as we were reading, it really gives the basis for everything Paul's going to argue in this and on the other side. So there's the basis, and we're always looking for these 
these words that, that give us the reason or give us why what is being said is being said. So we have words like that. we got four. And on the other side, we have another one like that. Um, and, and what Paul is doing is he's giving reasons, he's giving arguments why you should believe certain things. So don't you want to know how to kill sin? I mean, don't you want to know how to move towards biblical change? Don't you want to know how to live like a Christian? Because that's, that's as you shine as your light, that's how God is glorified, and that is how you become, even, even in this life, we become more and more like God. So we, we want to know how to kill sin. We realize that, especially from this passage, God is working in us, and we are working it out. So there's these two sides, these two sides of the same coin. But essentially, at the root of all sin is this idea of bad theology. If we thought correctly, then we would act correctly. But the problem is our, our thinking at some level when we sin is flawed. And that's why the word is our basis, our basis for correct living. And essentially, as we work through this passage, we're going to learn what, what sanctification really looks like as we live out what it is to be a Christian. So we're, we're going to look at this passage basically two ways. The first, we're going to really s- get specific on verses 25 through 28. And then we're going to kind of zoom out a little bit and look at that application because the principles that we're going to learn apply to basically all sin. It, it's teach, going to teach us how to kill sin in our lives. So the main point, of course, is going to be that, especially from this passage, is coming up on the board, if I can find it on my page. (laughs) We've been recreated. Christians have been recreated to live in the reality of truth-telling, righteous anger, and generosity. So there's there's a difference in the, the Christian's life. So first we're going to see that as we're recreated to live in the reality of truth-telling, that it, it connects to our body life. How does it connect to our body life? Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, because, or for, we are members of one another. So here Paul, again, is using this argument of the mind, and he's saying the reason why we're supposed to speak truth is because we're members of one body. Chrysostom um, actually meant, says, says this. If the eye deceives the rest of the body, what good is that? Imagine, you know, the, the serpent here. You know it's a poisonous snake. You can see it with your eyes, and you put your hand out towards it. The, the body can't deceive itself. If the body is deceiving itself, it's going to lead to ruin. If the tongue tastes something bitter, does it deceive the stomach? No. And so likewise, if we're going to have healthy body life, we have to have truth at the ground level. We have to have truth in our speech. Why should I stop lying? Because, it, because when I stop lying, it promotes healthy body function. What does being a member of one another have to do with speaking the truth and not lying? What does anger have to do with lying and stealing? What is righteous anger and what is unrighteous anger? Well, essentially, they're all corruptions. 
Lying is truth corrupted. Anger is emotion corrupted. And stealing is work corrupted. And so when we live as Christians, we have this purity in us created by Christ, as we saw in verses 17 through 24. Now we realize there are going to be sin habits and patterns, but for body health, there has to be the body working together in truth. So truth-telling promotes the health and the growth of the body. Truth-telling promotes the health and the growth of the body. When God saved us, he took us out of those sinful patterns. So a, 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 a Christian needs to be marked by multiple things. At, at the very least, four things. A Christian needs to base his life on the Bible. He needs to base his life uh, on the Bible, of course, the Word of God. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He is surrounded by other members or church members, the one another passages. And he has a certain humility. I mean, there's a certain attitude. And the attitude is, of course, faith, faith repentance, etc. But there's a humility. In, and why do we need that humility? We need that humility because as we speak truth to one another, there's going to be some difficult things that we may have to say. And, and the church facilitates this in different ways. The church facilitates this through Sunday schools. The church facilitates this through life groups. But the question is, are we speaking truth with our neighbor? Are we opening ourselves up so that we can be changed, so that we can let other people speak into our lives? You know, a facade is, is something on a building that, that is, makes the building look bigger, right? It makes you want to go there. I don't know if you've ever seen those fireworks stores, but usually the facade is like three stories. You go in and it's just one, this little rinky-dink shop. As Christians, though, it's very easy for us to put up a facade, a face, and to act like we're something different. But we've we got to address the elephant in the room. We're all sinners. And so why, why don't I open up and say, this is where I need help? How, how do you think I should react in this situation? How do you think I can, I can beat this sin? And that connects all of those four things I put up on the board. It, it connects the Word to the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit's in you, but he's also in your brother. He's in your sister in Christ. And then it connects the humility, the, the humility you have to have to receive that correction. So there's that truth-telling and love, and Paul Bixby really, really got that connection this morning. There's the truth, and there's love. And we, saw that, we see that in uh, Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth to one another in love. You know, I was up in Pennsylvania a couple weeks ago, and I was just, you know, loading the van with my dad, and my dad made a comment about a certain sin in my life, and I just kind of brushed him off. Yeah, well, you know, you, you, you've done that too, and um, it's not that big a deal, and I'm kind of working on it. You know, and I realized, like 30 seconds later, it didn't take long at all, wow, he, he put himself out there, he spoke the truth, he spoke it in love, it was a, it was a loving spirit, and I basically just rejected him. You know, and he was doing the biblical thing. He was doing the godly thing. You know, I called him a couple, couple days later, and I just said, look, what you said was right. I need to wor work on that. I appreciate you saying something. And now, what's going through my mind when I deal with that, with that sin or that issue? 
what he said, and, 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 I'm, and I'm, it's more in the forefront. It's not something I'm pushing to the side and pretending like it, it doesn't exist. So there's the two sides of correction, right? There's the humility to be re- corrected, but there's also, and there has to be this, the humility to correct. Proverbs 9 says this, 8 through 12, Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. You know, we might think, well, they're going to reject me if I say something, you know, that's this glaring issue. The wise man receives the rebuke and is wiser still. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you know, if you laugh at reproof, ah, I don't know, what's he talking about? Then you alone will bear it. So we need to take, we need to be, from, even from this passage, we need to be bold in our correcting of other people, but bold in humility. Think about Paul. I mean, man, he went head-to-head with Peter because of Peter's hypocrisy in the Galatian church. He was sitting, he had separated himself from the Gentile Christians, and he was sitting with the Jews, these Judaizers, really. And Paul said, you, you can't be doing that. You're, you're basically undermining the entire gospel. You think that was easy for Paul to do? We, we often put Paul on this pedestal because he wrote like half the New Testament and stuff, but Paul, I'm sure, had to pray about that. He had to think about what he was going to say. And especially as a leader in the church, he had a responsibility to say something too. But we need that humility to receive correction because Peter received that correction, didn't he? Because in 2 Peter he says... Paul's written some hard things, but honor them as you do the other scriptures, right? So, so Peter didn't take it and throw it out the window. He, he took that rebuke, and he realized his own hypocrisy. So there's that two sides of being corrected. There's, there's the being corrected, but then there's also the being bold to correct. And we can't put that facade up so that people only see that. We need to show them who we really are and realize that we're accepted in Christ because we have new life in Christ. Now, what about, you know, if you're a kid? You know, you may receive quite a bit of correction from your parents, but again, think about what, what, what that proverb said. Take the correction from your parents and realize they're seeking to make you wise. Do you want to be wise? You know, I remember um, growing up, Someone, someone really encouraged me to read Proverbs. So I would read Proverbs a lot, and I just was struck by the need for wisdom. We need wisdom at all stages of life to receive that correction from the Word and to receive that correction from other people. Otherwise, we won't grow. So that's the first point, and that's the one that I'm, I'm going to spend the most time on, so fear not. Uh, the second point is recreated to live in the reality of righteous anger. And something else I wanted to make note of really quickly, at least on this first page, is when it talks about let each of you, let each of you speak, and it's going to be the same thing about being angry, it's all in the second person plural. So it's all you all, essentially, and it's in an imperative, so you must. 
you all must speak the truth. So it's not something that you can just say, well, I, I think that's just for certain people. It's for the whole church. It's so that, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, so that the whole body can grow up together in maturity to the stature of a man in Christ. So be angry, but do not sin. You all be angry, but do not sin. So again, when we get into the anger part, we're going to look at that in three different subpoints, and we're going to see that there's... What, what's the definition of anger? Well, there's two kinds of anger, anger obviously. There's the anger of... Anger against sin, righteous anger against sin. But there's also sinful anger. And typically that sinful anger is against people or circumstances. So you have this, this definition of, of anger. And what is the definition of anger? Well, essentially, it's, it's this deep-seated uh, hatred of sin. It, it should be. That's the righteous anger. But when it's unrighteous anger, when it's sinful anger, it's angry at my circumstances. One of the kids mentioned yelling and screaming, right? Something's not going their way. They're getting angry. Maybe it's, maybe it's vulgar language. There's, there's many different ways to categorize sinful anger. But righteous anger is anger at sin. And it motivates for change. Righteous anger motivates for change. But it, its duration needs to be short. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. James 1, verses 19 and 20 say, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, what anger is James talking about? Of course, he's talking about anger at circumstances and anger at people, not anger at sin. But we also realize that Jesus was angry, right? Jesus was angry regarding aspects of worship, wrong worship. Mark chapter 3, he seeks to heal a man on the Sabbath. He does heal the man, and he can see right into the hearts of the Pharisees, and he asks them a question. Is it right to do, is it, should I do good on the Sabbath or evil? And the Pharisees, of course, are stuck because of the good question, and they say, they don't say anything. And Jesus is angry with them because they're upset with Jesus that he would heal a man on the Sabbath, that he would do good on the Sabbath. So, Jesus was angry. He was also angry in the temple. John chapter 2, he's driving out the money changers. But this anger is anger at wrong worship, which, and wrong worship is essentially sin. But for us, we're human beings. Our anger, if it is righteous anger, even our righteous anger must be short. You know, the picture that came to mind right away, especially with this don't let the sun go down on your anger, is, the, is to me the idea of, you know, your husband and wife sleeping on the bed and you've you know, got backs turned to each other. You know, you're facing either way, you're not talking, you're upset because of a certain circumstance. And essentially, the Christian doesn't have the freedom to do that. I mean, the sun's already gone down, so you could say, well, that's, what's the big deal? <laughs> that's really a metaphor. You know, it's a metaphor. And, and we all know that, that single people may, may have this issue as well, anger, and, and getting rid of it, sending it back to God, repenting of it if it's sinful, motivating for that change, but not sitting in it, thinking about it, mulling over those circumstances. Now, these two words, angry, anger or anger, angry, are different, but they're basically coming at the same, the same root. But there's this, and this has more, this, I, this has more the idea of... Um, it's not going to come to me now. Provocation. 
So being provoked. So when, when you're angry, and maybe even it's righteous anger, don't sin. Make sure it's not sinful. But then when you're provoked, make sure that that provocation does not end up coming into the next day. Because that's really going to cause a divide in, in, the, in the husband-wife relationship, in the relationship with other people. Now, I'm not saying you're not going to have conflict in marriage, you're not going to have conflict in life. We know we will. But we have to be Christian in our response. We have to move on, and we need to ask forgiveness. We need to die to self, you know, and not carry that, that anger at someone else. And we need, to, we need to move on from it very quickly. And we need to, or we need to use that anger to motivate for change and, and confess those sins and, and move forward from that. So we have the duration, we have the definition, we have the duration, but then we also have the danger, which of course is it can give, the, give a place for the devil. Notice, if you resist the devil, he will flee. So if you're giving a place to the devil, what are you not doing? You're not resisting him. You're essentially not... I mean, that's a scary thought. If I am not getting rid of my anger, I'm giving a place for the devil. I'm not resisting him. I'm giving him an opportunity in my life. And that word, opportunity, literally means place. That's why I kind of use the birthday party illustration. So you're giving him a place. You're giving him a chance to be there. And, and I don't want the devil to have any chance in my life. And yet, when I think through my daily routine and the times that I get angry, I think, wow, yeah, that really did give the devil an opportunity. So we've got to be careful with the, making sure that we do have the right kind of anger, making sure that it's not long, it's short. We, get it, we, we, we realize if we stay in anger, it's going to not work the righteousness of God. And then we realize that there is a danger to anger. Proverbs 29, 22 mentions, mentions how destructive it can be. Be wary or be cautious to assume your anger is righteous. Be, be very wary to assume that your anger is righteous, especially if it's prolonged. It's probably not. And if you're not sure, ask a brother in Christ. Ask a sister in Christ. And hopefully they will speak truth to you and help you through that. So then, as we get to point number three, I'm going to flip this over. We're going to look at this new reality for the Christian, which is living in generosity. And I'll explain that chart in a little bit. So let the thief no longer steal, and it's literally the stealer, or the one who steals. The one who steals, or the stealer, steal no longer. So you have this idea that, like, this is what defined him. What defined this person was that he was a thief, and it changes from from all plural, right, to an individual. Let the one who stole third person singular, steal no longer, but rather let him labor doing honest work. And this labor has to do with um, 
It's really looking at strenuous work. So it's strenuous and it's, it's not necessarily work with your hands. Again, that could be taken as a metaphor, but it's, it's all that he does, right? It's in all the things that that person might do. It's going to be strenuous and it's good work. The Christian should never be afraid or ashamed of hard work. It's the duty of all. And we as Christians are recreated to live in generosity. You can say, well, no, it sounds like we're created to live to be workers. But that's not, I mean, that's true. But the conclusion that Paul comes to is right here. See, there's another one of those connecting words. Labor with his own hands, so that. So this is the purpose, essentially. Why? Or, 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 or what's going what's to be the result? What's the purpose of this working, of this good labor, honest labor, honest work? What's, what's, what's the end goal? What's the result? That he may have something to share with anyone in need. Do, do thieves typically, no. Do thieves typically steal stuff and then like give it away? No. Yeah, you got the exception, Robin Hood and says stuff like that. But not really. No. That's not what they do. They're stealing for themselves. They want to have more. You know, they want to get that diamond and sell it for millions and then have millions. And then, and then go retire on some island. They're not, they're not philanthropists. Can you imagine? Like, greatest thief in the world. Philanthropist. Like, what? No. They're selfish. It's, it's at the core of, of who they are. But Christians are recreated to live in the realm, the reality of generosity. And the method of that work is labor and doing good. The Christian's first thought should not be, what is the maximum amount of money I can make so I can splurge on on everything that I want? It's he's doing good with his hands to provide for the needs of his family, and it's so that he can be generous to God and to others. So I I would... uh, put forth to you definitely tithe, right? We definitely should give money to God. But we should also separate some money personally. I mean, the church does this, and that's excellent. But we personally should also set some aside so that we can share with anyone in need. So maybe, you know, I'm not going to give percentages, but maybe if you give an X, X amount, just set aside a small, small percentage to, get, to, to have a little area so that when someone else is in need, you can just say, hey, I already have money set aside for that. Take this. And, and that would be fulfilling the, the scope of this verse to some extent. And it change, So there's this change in character in the Christian. So the motivation for work, we looked at the method, labor and doing good, but then the motivation for work is generosity. Money is not an end in itself, and we're supposed to earn money as a good doer. That's the literal, literal translation of honest work. He's doing good in what he does. So that, that talks about a, a truthfulness even in the work, right? A goodness even in the work that the person does. So we as Christians, we don't have the freedom to put down more hours than we actually worked. We don't have the freedom to not claim certain things on, on IRS. We, we have to have a truthfulness even in our work. Our, all of our work must be done for God's glory. All right, so that was basically the specific look at the passage. Now we're going to get into 
is how we take the same paradigm that we kind of looked at from verses 17 through 24 and the application of this in specific sins. So this chart's super hard to read, but I have it, um, I have it up there. And I'm probably not even going to bother writing it because my handwriting's so bad. Um, but basically, as we walked through verses 17 through 24, we noticed that there's this put off, which is in verse 20, 20, uh, 22. You're putting off these evil desires. But, what's, but what are you... Yeah, yeah, it's starting with the mind, right? So if you want to kill sin, how do you kill sin? If you want to kill sin, we, we looked at those four things. You've got to have the Word. You've got to have the Holy Spirit. You've got to have other brothers and sisters around you. And you've got to have humility and, of course, repentance and faith. You've got to put off first, Paul argues, wrong thinking. Verses 17, 18, 23. So who am I? What's my identity? What's my wrong thinking when it comes to sin, when I was an unbeliever? My wrong thinking is that I'm identified by my sin. And according to the passage, I am an angry person. I am a lying woman. I'm an angry man. I'm selfish. That's, that's who I am, right? That's the wrong thinking. And that wrong thinking leads to wrong action. Wrong action such as lying, falsehood getting angry at circumstances and people, or stealing. So you can kind of keep putting these, putting these up on the board if, if my uh, PowerPoint was put, uh, put together correctly. But then the Christian moves on. Okay, so yeah, so here's the identity. I allow my sin to define me. That's wrong thinking. The, the correct thinking, the cor- correct thinking in Christ, which is verses, you can just see it right there, it's put on 20 and 21, 23, 25 to 28, especially what we just looked at, is who I am in Christ. Hence the, the, the series title, New Life in Christ. The, my right thinking is, I'm a member of the body. That, that's the logical conclusion that Paul comes to about not lying, right? You're a member of the body. Think differently. You're a member of the body. Don't lie. That's not what I would have thought. I, you know, I would have written, if you're lying, just stop talking, then you won't be lying. But no, it's, it's a heart issue, isn't it? Sin's always a heart issue. And it starts with bad theology. So we've got to change the way we think about sin. What about getting angry? Just stop using your emotions? No, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your angry. Uh, don't go, let the sun go down on your anger. So you have this change of mind concerning these different actions as well. What about your identity in Christ regarding work? It's, it's the idea of selflessness, right? We kind of talked about that already. What does the thief do? The thief is selfish. He's defined by what he wants. So he wants it, he takes it. But the Christian is defined by selflessness. So he thinks differently. But what does that turn into as far as actions? We looked at the actions already of the putting off. Put off, put off these, these wrong actions and put on truth-telling in love. Put on being angry at sin and making sure that that anger moves, motivates for change and that anger is short. And put on 
generous, a generous spirit and a working attitude. Why? Because that new identity, that selflessness that you are in Christ. But how do we get from the put off to the put on? How do we move from who we were to who we want to be in Christ? Well, the Holy Spirit has done that, right? The Holy Spirit has worked a new life in us. We have to confess our sins, of course. We have to repent. We have to believe. We have to rely on Him. But if we want to put off sin, it starts with putting off wrong wrong thinking and putting on right thinking. So we resist the devil. We rely on Christ. We don't rely on ourselves. When we sin, we repent of our sin. And we reflect God's glory as we do what's right. And as I kind of started off, what I, did, what I didn't want to come across is, is this is like, this is us working out. This is how we get saved. No, this is how we're sanctified. This is how we're sanctified. God saves us through justification. He declares us righteous in His sight. But as Philippians 2, 12 and 13 say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. So what's the point there? The point there is when you do something correct, when you honor Christ in your action, it was God working in you. That was God. That's like super crazy. That takes pride off the table. If I do something good, that was Christ in me. That's it. And every single time I fail, that was the old man coming back up. That's, that's, that's humbling, but it's also freeing. Because you realize, I don't want to be who I used to be. I want to be who I am in Christ. I want to put on the right thinking, and I want to start living for Christ because he's made me like who he is. So we put on the new you, the new life in Christ. So essentially what Philippians is getting at is we work out what God works in. God has done that work in us. He has saved us. But, but we continue, like, we're in time right now. We're in time. So we've got to live for his glory. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to do that. We're not left by ourselves. We've got the members of the local church to help us. We've got, we've got the Holy Spirit. We've got the word of God. And then we also need to work on that humility so we can receive that correction. And we need to be bold because we realize we have the Holy Spirit in us. We can correct other people in humility. In humility, in love, truth and love, as we saw this morning. But we have that ability. We are saved by Jesus Christ, His good works, His perfect life, and His death in our place. But, when Christ saved us, He didn't save us just from hell. He saved us from sin. He wants us to grow in righteousness. He wants us to be more like Him. And one day, we will be glorified and we will be just like Him. I love this phrase. We have been saved. We are being saved. And in one sense, we will be saved. Each one of those are true for the Christian. Justification, it's done. We have been saved. Sanctification, we're working out our salvation in the sense that we're working out what God has already worked in. And then we will be saved. We will be glorified. We might say, I still, Ben, I still don't get it. I can't figure out how to beat the sin in my life. 
I, I have one little slide up there. There's seven little steps. You can take a quick picture of it. Um, but essentially, you know, how, how do I keep kill, killing sin? Jay Adams basically takes this and then just expands it. Well, be aware of habits and patterns. Psalm 1. Are you sitting with sinners? Are you standing with, with scoffers? Or are you changing your circumstances? Are you, just, are you being influenced by those people who are around you? So that, that Psalm 1 is a helpful, helpful passage there. Discover the biblical alternative. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Ah, oh, I'm struggling with sin. I can't kill this sin. Are you reading your Bible? You know, are you praying? Are you around Christians? Are you taking the face off? Are you taking the facade off? And are you being real with other people? No. Okay, well, we got to work on this. i got to work on this. And that's how God will help you kill sin. That's Colossians 3, Romans 6, 11. Pastor Connolly mentioned this even just last week. Structure all of life for change. Everything is done to Christ's glory, whether eating or drinking. Colossians 3, 17, 16 is helpful as well. We've got to break the links of, of sin, the, the, the chain of sin. There are certain things that often will lead to sin. You know, if you talk to counselors often say, well, so-and-so is dealing with, uh, with lust. Okay, well, he plays certain video games that has content in it that is, you know, points towards that direction. The, ch- the link in the chain is get rid of the video games. That will help. So there's certain practical steps that we can take. You know, I always get angry when thus and such pulls out in front of me. Okay, well, you've got to change my thinking so that I'm ready for thus and such to pull out in front of me. <laughs> that never happens to me. <laughs> then number five, getting help from others, confessing our sins to one another, James 5, 16. Emphasize the whole relationship to Christ. This is the idea that, like, let's, again, let's say you're in the counseling room and you say, you know, if I do thus and such, will my wife come back to me? If I do thus and such, will that mend the relationship with my child? Maybe, maybe not. But the motivation needs to be the glory of Christ. I'm going to do this right thing because that's what God wants me to do. Not just for the, the good outcome, right? So we have to re- emphasize the whole relationship to Christ. And, and First Chronicles basically says there, Ascribe to the Lord the gl- glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So it's about God. It's not about me. And I want to do the right thing because that's what God wants me to do. Not just so that I get better, out, better circumstances. Because we're not promised, you know, in the Bible, we're not promised prosperity. We're promised all who worship, all who love me are essentially going to see persecution. I butchered that verse, but you know what I mean. And then finally, practice the new pattern, and we looked at that, working out our salvation, what God has worked in us. So Christians have been recreated to live in the reality of truth-telling, righteous anger, and generosity. But the pattern of the put-on, the put-off, putting off the wrong thinking, putting off the wrong actions, putting on the right thinking through Christ, putting on the right actions because of who we are in Christ, that is all essentially a part of the gospel of what is expected, really, for every true believer. We're, we're all going to attain to the maturity in Christ. And we're going to struggle with sin, of course, but we all are fighting sin, as we've heard from First John. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us live as he's made us.
Father, we give you thanks that you have bought us in Christ, that you have given us new life, and that we're not who we used to be. That is such an amazing truth. We give you thanks that even as we see little victories in our life, we know that that's God working in us. That's you working in us. And that gives us hope to keep putting to death the deeds of the flesh. So we give you thanks that you are our God. You're on our side. You've given us your word. You've given us your Holy Spirit. You've given us salvation. You've given us the membership in the church. And we give you thanks for that. We have so much to be thankful for. We pray that we would honor you and please you in all we do in Christ's name.